Okay, so it was a Twitch stream of Time Watch, the uh, gumshoe RPG by Robin D. Laws. Nope, scratch that. <laughs> Playground in New York City. I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Yishin. And welcome to episode 145 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how to explain a new game system to your group. But first the rogue traders split the party in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, Sailor Moon defends the universe and her friends in the character creation forge. You know Shane, uh, when you applied with the city for a permit for the Mundangerous Playground, you assured everyone that it would be a lovely community area with, like, green space. And yet, mm-hmm. everything is rusted, Yep, and it's mostly tires mm-hmm. that have occasionally been set on fire. Well, let's be honest. It's a dump. Yeah. Because everyone knows... For that children. When you do a real estate deal... <laughs> In New York City, <laughs> if you make any public easements, you immediately renege on that offer. Uh, I think you're taking the wrong impression away from this administration, Shane. No, that's just how that's just how real estate gets done in the Northeast, okay? You're like the guy who watches The Wolf of Wall Street and says, yeah, this is a good idea. Nope, I'm just a guy who knows a guy who had some stuff to dump. <laughs> um, speaking... No, 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 we'll get to that later. Shane, uh... You did a live stream, didn't you? And I did not. Uh, yes, I did. How was it? Because I didn't watch it live, obviously, because if I could have watched it live, then I would have just done it with you. Uh, it was good. Here. What was it? Because <laughs> all I've heard thus far is something about time-traveling Nazis? Uh, it was a Twitch stream of Time Watch, a time-traveling gumshoe RPG. And it was hosted by the Don't Split the Podcast Network uh, on their channel and GM'd by Vegas Lancaster. And indeed, we did stop the Nazi Time Corps from ever existing. Oh, that's actually the only outcome I'm happy with. Oh, we stopped the Nazi Time Corps for now is not a good outcome. Well, right. Well, I mean, that's kind of kind of the problem, I guess, with time travel is that you can never really stop them forever or even for now. It's just like we stop them in this way. What do those words even mean? Exactly. I spent a lot of time doing mental backflips, and it was very confusing. Nice. What, okay, so how was the system compared to other gumshoe-type games that we played? Exactly like other gumshoe games we played. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so base level of competency, um, and then spend finite numbers of points in order to um, succeed better or accomplish more difficult tasks? Yeah, and the same split between investigative and general abilities. Um, This one is themed around time travel, so you've got things that help you, like, anchor yourself in reality so that you don't, you know, cause paradoxes and stuff like that. Oh, is this uh, the type of time travel where you slowly fade away in photos? Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. It's the kind of time travel where, I I mean, it's back to the future time Mm -hmm. travel. Mm -hmm. Like, we had to go back in time to... um, prevent a, a marriage that spawned the nazi time corps no we did not stop nazis we just stopped the nazi time corps you just stopped their parents from from getting together we stopped one nazi's parents from getting together 
But what if they really loved each other? Well, we actually, I guess we stopped one Nazi, one time Nazi from marrying the love of his life, who uh, stuff happens and Amelia Earhart is involved. (laughs) You know what? I'm okay with time Nazis not finding true happiness. Oh, yeah. No, I was fine with that, too. I did feel a little bit bad at the end. I, I had to at least make sure that we had only ruined his life from a happiness standpoint and hadn't accidentally turned him into a Nazi. Oh, right. Always the danger. Right. Why is Hitler so angry? It's because so many people keep traveling back in time to try to kill him. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. For no reason, as far as he's concerned. As far as he knows. Right. (laughs) All right. Um, Speaking of not making any sense, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? Uh, We're jumping back segments so that I can say there's a link in the show notes. It makes no sense. Time travel. Woohoo! Uh, So, the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game, played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Dead World Malajact, the Rogue Traders and their two best companies of armsmen have located the Verza House, an ancient obsidian fortress once occupied by the fallen Dark Angel, Lord Cypher. You know, I keep thinking maybe we should stop bringing our best companies of armsmen on away missions, because they invariably die horribly and then we are left with our now best companies of armsmen well the thing is you never run out of best companies of armsmen it's true it's like like you never run out of least dirty clothes (laughs) for some reason i never run out of lieutenants (laughs) there's always a new one (laughs) right (laughs) okay so we're in the verzer house i believe we're in the basement of the verzer house or at least some of us are some of us mm, left Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, all of the rogue traders and some of the honor guard. And you are repelling the second attack of the day, actually. Uh, you it's have... like the second attack of the hour. Well, yeah, that's how coordinated attacks work. Uh, uh, so first they attacked in the upper casements and, and uh, hit you there. Then they attacked through a tunnel in the basement and tried to hit you there. Um, you ended up repelling that attack at the last minute, and the enemies retreated down a large dugout tunnel um, in the bedrock from the basement. Wow, they've been playing this a while. Oh yeah, no, this is <laughs> see, seems like this was there for their purposes. Wait, they didn't dig it just for us? No, I am disappointed. Yeah, the in the three hours you've been there, they they didn't have time. <sighs> I felt special, but you have figured out that. You were being attacked by mutated humans. Um, Not grossly mutated, but mutated enough. Just mildly mutated. Right. Uh, Almost like they had, um, you know, been exposed to some bad kinds of chemicals. Oh, like, wait, like Batman villains. Like from an exterminatus or something. (laughs) Or something. (laughs) You mean the the kind of event that might make the entire surface of a planet a dry wasteland of glass storms? Yeah, maybe. Oh, hmm. Um, but in the meantime, uh, even armed with that knowledge, you can't dissuade tricks and flair from charging on after the retreating foes. Uh, they are too hyped up on, uh, bloodlust and psyker energy and possibly Eldar combat drugs. We don't actually know. There's a good point there. Um, and they end up dragging some more of your armsmen with them on down that tunnel, uh, to continue harassing the enemy as they retreat. You know what? To be fair, we often like to have them run ahead because then we find out if there are any bad guys over there who then shoot at them and not, you know, me. Which is uh, what happens. 
<laughs> so in the tunnel, there's another firefight. The I guess if we're counting, the third one of the day. And this time, it's kind of a route for you guys. Like, uh, you know, there's as, bl- as in we route them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Flare and Tricks, I mean, their blood's up, and they are bringing the Emperor's sweet vengeance on these heretics. Great. Uh, this is a happy ending. We succeed, right? We kill them all, and we take their, what, pirate weapons? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, that's what happens. <laughs> what actually happens? Mm, a trap gets triggered. Uh-huh. Because, of course, it does. And then what happens? Uh, the tunnel collapses. And guess what? The parties split up. Whoopsie. There's some good news, though. Mm, I don't think there's good news. Well, there's news. <laughs> Stuff happens. <laughs> Flair hears a voice in his head. Uh, You mean beyond the normal ones because he's a crazy person? Well, right, yeah. No, he hears a, an intentional voice in his head. Is it a lady? It's a lady. Is it a young lady? It's a, it's a young lady. Oh, no. It's, it's a the... young lady that he had previously attempted to reach telepathically. Is it the 14-year-old inquisitor who uh, forced us to come here on pain of death? It is. Okay, so what'd she say? She says... To hold the fortress at all costs. And we'll find out how well we do next week. So this week, we are talking about teaching a new system. Which is not the same thing as teaching players how to play RPGs. Yeah. Um, We'll probably do an entire episode on that at some point in the future. Because it's actually literally on our list of topics to do in the future. Right. So this is teaching players who have played an RPG before how to play a new RPG system. Yeah. Now, if you do want to teach some brand new players, you know, right now, uh, check out episode 108, uh, which is the introduction to RPGs episode for uh, those of you who don't really know that much about, well, I guess what an RPG is in the first place. It's a role-playing game. But for the rest of you, if this topic seems pretty specific, it's not, Okay. There are actually a bunch of different reasons that you might end up in a position where you need to explain to other gamers how to play a new system. Yeah, I think the number one reason for most groups is you just bought a new book and you want to try it out. Yeah. <laughs> it happens so often. It happens every convention season at our table. <laughs> like five times. Right. Uh, so we talked about before how our group uh, rotates GMs. We We rotate games. You know, we'll do somewhere between six weeks and six months of like one game with like one GM um, and everyone else is like playing the same characters in the same party. And then we'll just set that aside for another arc of a different game with a different GM. And often that's actually with a totally different game system. Actually, I think it's pretty rare that we will go from a game in one system to another game in that same system because we're really looking to kind of shake things up and not just give the GM a chance to uh, rest and play, but also to give everyone at the table, uh, I guess, a chance to sort of use different mental muscles. And it it keeps the game system from getting too stale. Of course, even if you're in the kind of group where you've got the same GM for 13 years and you're, you know, it's always the same GM and always the same players, it's quite possible you might find yourself in a pickup game with some new people. Maybe you're at your friendly local gaming store picking up uh, that new game system that you want to try out. Or maybe it's International Tabletop Day. Hey, or maybe you just need some more minis or some dice because you never have enough dice. So you joined a game so you can steal them? Yes. Okay. 
Um, you know, this also happens a lot at conventions. I mean, uh, I know when I play at conventions, I almost never know the system. I'm always learning it like for the first time. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that we sort of keep an eye out for when we're picking convention games in the first place is like, oh, okay, I'm, I got to learn all of this stuff anyway. It's going to be a new setting. It's going to be new people. May as well learn a new system. And maybe that's something that we can bring back to the table, um, you know, for our home game. All right. So if you're teaching a new game system, it is most likely that you're going to be the GM. So what's the first thing you need to do in order to teach players your new game? You should have, at the very least, a passing familiarity with the game that you're trying to teach. Yeah, uh, it's. I think it's fine if, like, you're all like, we have no idea what we're doing, and you know, we all want to learn together. That's sort of a different beast. Yeah, but you can't be reading the book for the first time. Yeah, <laughs> at the table, it doesn't, doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> you're not actually playing then. Like, you should all just go read the book. Yeah. So, so at least make sure that you've read the core mechanic and know. You know, something, if you're going to do character creation, you know something about that. Like, make sure you've got a sense of how the game is supposed to be played and sort of what kind of adventures it's meant for. You know, just have a have an understanding of the elevator pitch and, and how to at least roll dice. Yeah, make sure you have the right dice. That helps. <laughs> yeah. If it's a game that only uses D6s and you showed up with your White Wolf D10s, you got a problem. Yeah, you open the first book of any fantasy flight system and you're like, uh... I have none of these dice. I will, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to need the similar size dice, but with different symbols. Uh, you guys are just want to play every, everyone is John? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it really is best if you, the one who is teaching, uh, has played the game before. And it's actually great if you were in a situation where there was someone else who had taught it to you while you were playing. Because... That really gives you a great sense of the parts of the game that are really tough to grasp for new people. Yeah, it's also good if you can't play it beforehand, thanks to the you know proliferation of actual play podcasts and uh, streams, like go watch somebody else play it for a bit so that you can at least understand how that group interpreted the rules. No, I, I really can't recommend actual play podcasts. But okay. that is only because the Ennies still only has one category for podcasts and doesn't split them up. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, so I just see them all as competition. Okay, that's a good point. Um, <laughs> the, they also allowed a YouTube channel to be nominated for Best Podcast, so I don't even know what that word means anymore. Should, should we be insulting them before they make, do all the judging? No, we're not submitting this episode, so they'll never, <laughs> Who they'll never know. Who cares? <laughs> all right, so... But if you're doing prep ahead of time, you definitely do not need to have read the uh, rule book for the game that you're trying to teach someone else cover to cover. Uh, I don't think I've read any rule book cover to cover, even like the games that we play all the time. Oh, I, I definitely have. Uh, but I was 13 and I had a lot more free time. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's back when you didn't have to drive yourself to school. <laughs> um, But yeah, I mean, like, I don't know that I've ever read a vehicle rule section on purpose <laughs> like, yeah like ever ever right um and i've still only skimmed grappling right <laughs> uh although i have to skim it constantly yeah i, sk I skim it usually at the table <laughs> when i'm trying to figure out how to do it right and really i'm just looking like i'm skimming while i'm coming up with some simplified way of handling this right so don't don't feel discouraged if you haven't read the whole thing but you know do target the areas that are most likely to come up at the table in that first session so you know, if your game is about space combat, then you should know the space combat rules. If your game is about 
dueling and sword fighting, you should know the sword fighting rules. Right. If it's political intrigue, maybe take a look at the skills. Yeah. Maybe ignore the rules on sniper rifles. I don't know. No, you should always have sniper rifles. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, if I'm in your game, you should know how sniper rifles work because I will break them. I, they are the uh, greatest tool of political change. <laughs> Fair. Yes, that's true. The ballot button. Nope, nope, the sniper rifle. Okay, so you've decided on what game you're going to play. You are fairly familiar with it actually you really like this game and you are going to tell the other people at your table how to play this thing so that all of you can play it all the time because it's awesome what now as with all attempts to teach things relate it to something that they understand so compare and contrast as much as possible yeah the nice thing about teaching a new system to other people who've already played different rpgs is that you've got a common touchstone. So all you really need to do when you're explaining something is not do it from the ground up, just compare it to uh, the system that all of you know. It's like a language, right? Okay, we we all played White Wolf. Uh, here's how it specifically relates to the way that we would do this particular thing in White Wolf. So, you know, first off, what is the task resolution system? You know, do you roll a d20 and then add a number to it? Do you roll a d20 and then subtract a number from it? Maybe you're rolling 2d6. Maybe it's percentile. Maybe you're rolling high. Maybe you're rolling low. Whatever it is, explain that general mechanic. Because typically, most games have one, maybe two central die rolls that help you figure out what actually happened. Yeah, and you... You want to use the game's terminology so that they understand the rules, but you also want to tie it to terms that they understand. So, you know, if it's called a skill check in D&D and it's called a skill test in Warhammer 40K, then, you know, use those two terms interchangeably, but kind of err on the side of test, right? So that, that everyone is getting used to using the terminology, but they're, they're never lost for what it means. Yeah, you'll see this a lot when people are upgrading from like an earlier edition of the same game to a new edition. Like still, I think sometimes we call... Fortitude save. Yeah. <laughs> or we'll go like, uh, I make an attack of opportunity. Right. Which is like obviously the same thing as an opportunity attack. Right. And these will fall into general categories. Um, the most obvious one is is mechanical, right? Like Shane just said, a fortitude saving throw. Those don't exist in 5th edition D&D, but... If you are teaching someone 5e and they've played 3rd edition or 4th edition before, then you can just say, yeah, uh, make a wisdom saving throw. It, it's like uh, your, your will save. You know, it, They're still called saving throws. Yeah, likewise, look at the elements of narrative control. So, you know, if your game has some, some type of um, meta token that can be used for narrative effects, you know, it's like a Benny, but it's called XP in Cypher System. You'll also want to explain the tropes of the game, whether that is the game setting, you know, the, sort of the expectations of like um, what characters are, are able to do or the scope of the kind of actions you can take. Or it could be the, the fiction itself. You know, lots of times when you're playing or learning a new game system, it also comes with a totally new setting. So if you're teaching someone Warhammer 40K, you might want to take a little extra time to make sure that they understand that, that an orc or K is way more vicious than your like your average run of the mill D and D orc ORC. Like, there's no way that uh, a relatively regular human being is going to be able to handle 
a Warhammer 40k orc one-on-one in combat. They're just going to get pasted. Right. I think it's also helpful to discuss tone. Um, so if you're if your game is Firefly and you're used to playing Star Wars, well, you're going to have to get used to being a little bit a little bit more gritty, a little bit more granular, maybe a focus on resources and survival that isn't really uh, a hallmark of Star Wars. Yeah, you're going to need to track the fuel because that's a big part of the Firefly game even though nominally both of them are uh, essentially, you know, we're a scrappy crew traveling on a rust bucket through space and i think it's also good to discuss the role of the gm in a given game because you know it might make the similar kind of assumptions as DD, and that might be familiar to your table but there's also games like dungeon world where the gm is less of a narrator and more of a facilitator for the improvisational narrative that the players are coming up with for their characters Yeah, just like uh, we talked about in the episode about Session Zero, um, when you're laying out, you know, what this game is going to be like, like, is this going to be a railroady game or, you know, is this going to be a sandboxy game? How much initiative do you, the players, need to take in determining what's going to happen with the storyline, etc.? Different game systems have their default setting for those types of decisions set differently and that is a very helpful thing to convey to your players you know hey uh in this game uh system you you know you have force points or you have bennies or or you have you know tokens that you can cash in in order to like change things or make decisions or you know you have a preparedness skill it means we don't need to get into the nitty-gritty of like all of this stuff uh beforehand like we've done with other games and again you're just contrasting to the specific experiences that the people at your table have already dealt with. Okay, so it's time to play the game. You've already got them on board. You've given them the basics. What do we do next? We learn by doing because it is way more interesting to just play the game, screw up a bunch and figure out how it works that way than to get lectured about it for 45 minutes first. Okay, so there are basically two ways that you can go about doing this. Uh, I think the easiest and most direct, the one that gets you into it the fastest, is to just use pre-gen characters. Provide character sheets to the players, let them know um, the the main thrust of what they need to know about their character, uh, help them understand the important numbers or details that are on their sheet, and where to refer during gameplay so that you can just get started. Yeah, and even if you're playing uh, a system that doesn't already come with pre-gen characters, take a look online. Uh, I think pretty much every system, someone has created pre-gens ahead of time. Or, you know, if you know the system really well, go ahead and make five or six. Actually, probably make more like eight or ten, um, like low-level, relatively simple pre-generated characters uh, so that people at the table can, you know, pick what is most interesting to them. Actually, I would say it's probably better to make them yourself because character creation will teach you a lot about the system anyway, right? Like the act of having to make the characters. Oh, like you specifically. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's true. And, you know, scratch that itch. Also, um, the sheet itself, having a sheet uh, as a new player tells you so much about the game system because the important information is is laid out there by the people who designed the sheet. You know, if uh, 
if your hit points and your skills and your equipment are right there in front of you, but you've got to turn the sheet over in order to look at spells, well, then you're probably... <laughs> It's probably apparent that not everyone is going to use them, or maybe spells are less important for certain characters. And you can actually refer to the different sections of player sheets during gameplay, uh, just to call attention to like what is important to note. So you're attempting a, a skill check. That's great. Look at your sheet. They're listed on the right in alphabetical order. You know, look down. Since you're trying to um, jump over this, find your acrobatic skill. Over to the to the right there, there's your modifier. That's what you're going to add to your 3D6. So the alternative is to just have a session zero. Um, yeah, make them of, do it. Instead of you getting the knowledge by building characters, you help them gain the knowledge by building characters. And this is nice for groups who are much more, I think, narratively focused because the first thing you're doing is you're not talking about the mechanics right off the bat. You're starting with, okay, let's determine our story. You know, what is it that everyone wants to do? And from there, you are leading into uh, the mechanics. You know, you're talking to them about how to model what they want to play in game. So, you know, you want to be a a melee fighter. You've decided that. That's great. Uh, In this game, that means you would be best represented by an assassin or a warrior, but it's your choice. Either one works really well. And then this also gives you a chance to explain the mechanics as they cross the interest of the players, right? So, hey, I'm thinking of playing a pilot. Can you can you explain to me how these rules work? No, you can't play a pilot. All right, well, then I'm playing a sniper. Mm, yeah, that's fine. I'm playing a spy. A sniper pilot. I want to be a detective. I want to be free. I want to be a supermodel. Oh, well, that's assassin. Well, maybe. (laughs) Uh, But why male models? (laughs) You kidding me? I just explained that. (laughs) So uh, when you're explaining this, it's it's probably best to focus in the general terms about how these things work rather than getting, you know, stuck on the details. Uh, Once you're actually playing the game, you can kind of dig in on, on the nitty gritty of the mechanics. So once you've actually got characters in hand, then you're just going to start playing the game like you would normally, as if you knew what you were doing, which is really the best way to play RPGs in general, no matter what you're playing. Right, yeah, just fake it. (laughs) So yeah, so that means starting with a scene that uh, engages the characters in the story and then asking them what to do. Here's the setup. How do you respond? And then the character's actions in the fiction of the story then give you an opportunity to explain how those are going to be carried out with the mechanics of the game. Okay, great. You want to talk to this guard and you want to convince them to let the party through this locked door that they're guarding. Okay, Um, that's called a whining check. You are going to need to whine at them. Uh, in order to make that check, uh, if you look on your sheet, you can see that you roll 66, uh, and then you count the number of times that you rolled five or above. Wait, wait, you don't want to play this game anymore? Well, it's called whinging. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I see. It's it's like 40K. It's a British RPG. Right. Okay. Yeah. So when we played Knights Black Agents with our group for the first time, you and I had already played it in a one-shot um, at a con and and I picked it up and was like I want to run this and so we started playing and then when we got to investigation it got like a little weird right because 
I just started giving information <laughs> and people were like, wait, do I have to roll? Like, what's going on here? This is not how this usually works. Right. Why am I getting all this for free? <laughs> right. I don't what's, understand. What's the trick? <laughs> <laughs> is this false information? Yeah, exactly. Like, and already being me as the GM, like no one trusted any information oh, I gave. It's not like, at all. No. no, you guys are super spies. You just get stuff by by showing up and saying, I look for it. Yeah, I think we also did not a great job of indicating the tone where like they heard vampires and what they heard was Buffy the Vampire Slayer when we were leaning more towards, no, not everyone is a vampire. Like if we meet a vampire in six sessions, that's a big deal. Right, that's true. They thought it was like Monster of the Week kind of, uh, yeah, yeah, Buffy or X-Files sort of thing. And, yeah. and it's very much more like, hey, it's it's the born identity, except at the end, there's a very strong hint that there's a vampire involved. <laughs> so you're probably going to engage with the skill system of your game before you engage with the combat system. That's not always true. Um, but, you know, be aware that usually combat is the meteor um, mechanical section for games. So... When you get to combat, you'll need to go a little bit slower and sort of explain options and consequences to the players as they're going through so they understand the underpinning mechanics. Yeah, it's a bit counterintuitive because, you know, if you're taking a little time and studying whatever system you're about to run, you've probably spent the majority of your time really trying to understand the peculiarities of the combat system. But don't get thrown off when, you know, for the next, for the first like half hour or hour of your session, there's actually no combat because most situations or most scenarios that you're going to present first, unless you're doing like a media res, it's going to take them a while to get to the point where they're actually fighting people. They're sort of exploring that initial room gently because you have no idea exactly how to do anything. Right. So... Generally, you just want to keep your players from blundering into obvious mistakes because they're not familiar with the rules, but otherwise just kind of let them explore and make mistakes and understand like this works, this doesn't, you know, as they they slowly get more familiar with their sheet. Yeah. And, you know, when you're in combat, um, point out to them issues that their characters that they're playing would understand even though they as players may not understand it or may miss it because they're just not familiar with whatever it is the setting um or or the system right so if i'm playing a 40k psyker for the first time yeah you may have told me okay this is the grim dark future and like you know there are demons and you know you got to be careful when you're casting spells but I probably don't quite yet understand that there is a non-zero chance that when I cast a spell, I kill the entire party. Well, And that might be something that you might point out. It might be the reason you played a Psyker in the first place. <laughs> it, it might be. It's true. It might be the reason I was like, that's the sheet I want. Yep. <laughs> it also might be that I'm the player that always plays the wizard. Right. So I think it's also a good idea as you're going through the system to, like, sort of help players benchmark their characters so they understand like what's good odds of success what's poor odds of success like is this a lot of damage or not a lot of damage like, i think there's always a like a moment of truth in like the first combat when the first 
character gets hit by an NPC for the first time, and especially if it's like a particularly dangerous NPC, and it's just like, oh yeah, like I'm feeling really good, you know, I dealt like five damage, I've got like 11 hit points, like I'll be in good shape, and 13, I'm down on the ground, great. Yeah, how'd that happen? Wait, does that happen a lot? Yeah, oh, because you're fighting a vampire. Should I have healed myself immediately? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, it it helps to understand the packets, right? Do things happen in ones and twos, or like 143? Yeah, is this uh, is this riffs? <laughs> like, right. <laughs> like, are we talking damage or mega damage? Right. What what is mega damage? Uh, well, it doesn't matter because you're dead now. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just as the name implies, it's a thousand. <laughs> uh, yeah, these are these are big deals when when players are making decisions about what to do. Like in certain systems, um, you need to dodge the attack. You cannot get hit by the attack. If you get hit, you will die. But if you're used to a system like D&D where, you know, you've kind of got like this this bag of marshmallows around you in terms of your hit points all the time, um, you may think it's fine. It's one hit. Like, I'll I'll just soak it up. But in a system where, you know, you've got four wounds and, you know, the minimum that a goblin is going to do is one wound because this is a really realistic, gritty game. Mm, get out of the way. Right. There's also... Uh, comes when your players aren't making mistakes in tactics. They just are missing, like, um, you know, very specific peculiarities about the system. You know, okay, I'm going to make a tactical retreat. Well, because you're not using a disengage action, that opens you up to opportunity attacks, and, you know, four people are going to hit you, and that's definitely going to knock you down, is something that you should be conveying. Don't get in a situation where they say, okay, I'm going to make a tactical retreat, and then you're just like, uh, well, opportunity attack, opportunity attack, also two more of them, you're down, you suck. Like, it would have been nice to be like, your character knows this will happen. Um, you probably don't want to do that, but you certainly can if you want to. Yeah, you just got to be careful about that because you don't want to give the impression that you're playing for the characters or for the players, right? So obviously terrible ideas, sure, but questionable cases i think you just need to let them make mistakes i think there's like a a middle ground of of hand holding in the very early stages like for example almost every game system describes falling and falling damage differently and so you know if i am 20 feet off the ground like a, a cliff or something like that is this a is this a jump i can make like as a human uh i don't know isn't that a setting question like is that a metagame question then? It can be depending on how the game handles it, right? Like it, the game might be like, oh, if you're uh, trained in acrobatics, ignore the first 10 feet, in which case it's no big deal at all. Yeah, okay, but that's D&D. Like D&D is about superhumans. Star Wars falling damages kills you instantly because there are no superhumans. <laughs> that should be driven by the setting. Well, with something like 40K, some characters can do that and some characters can't and it just happens to be because of the way the the uh, skill is written mm. and falling yeah you can make an acrobatics check and take less falling damage i feel like i could kill you with falling <laughs> what i'm saying is the edge case right is 10 feet a lot is 20 feet a lot 70 feet is obviously a lot uh, okay i mean yeah twist your ankle and see what happens in 40k <laughs> you're as good as dead anyway this is why i never let we you might, teach me a system we might as well just put a bolt <laughs> around in your head um so 
the last b- bit of that first session, just make sure that whatever the cool thing about your system is, like its claim to fame, make sure that you highlight that in the session, whether it's at the beginning or at the end. Just like if you're playing the World War II um, fighter ace combat RPG where you are battling the Red Baron, well, you better make sure that you're battling the Red Baron in that first session and not just like sitting around in the hangar like shooting the shit and playing cards, you know? Yeah, it turns out you really were just sitting on your doghouse. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing that your players are going to remember when they're deciding, do we want to play this again? Or, you know, six months down the line, oh, yeah, that was the game where people uh, punch tanks and they explode. Right. Exalted, right. <laughs> <laughs> so even better than teaching a game by doing... I prefer to let other people teach the game for me. Yeah, that's the best advice a podcast could give. Don't teach the game. Find somebody else to do it. Great work. <laughs> so all the suggestions that we've given you uh, previously, they all apply, but you can just make sure that you know other people or everyone has the rules ahead of time. And what's definitely going to happen, what always happens is there are some people who are super interested in learning a new system and others who are not. So great. The ones who are interested, they read the rules. They probably read the rules better than you do. Because, you know, you're like planning a session and they're not. Uh, And then you just let them chime in when someone has questions about how to do stuff. Yeah, just make sure you create an environment where you're working together to understand the system rather than um, adversarially or oppositionally. Yeah, this is a chance for your rules lawyers to shine uh, and not in combat necessarily. They can actually be helpful. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) perfect. Did you know that falling damage caps out at 77 average damage? I think you can make this. Just go for it. Great. All right, so what are some caveats to teaching rule system? What are some gotchas? Um, This is going to take forever. It's going to take way longer to get through stuff than you expect. So for the first session, don't plan a a full session. You're not going to get through what you normally get through. Yeah, it's kind of a half session thing. Like, you know, maybe plan a couple encounters and an optional encounter in your back pocket um, and a pretty simple, straightforward story because it's it's unlikely that that first encounter is going to go so smoothly that you can just race through your adventure. Yeah, but yeah, hit the highlights, you know, tiny bit of combat, a little bit of healing so they understand how that works. Um, If it's a game like D&D where there are different pillars, um, or like subsystems, you know, touch on those or totally ignore some of the ones that like are not integral to understanding the game. It's also important not to ridicule the players for not being familiar with the system, right? So be encouraging, be patient, teach them rather than making them feel foolish for not getting it on the first try. Yeah, I remember when uh, some kid in like fourth grade was teaching me how to play chess. And he didn't tell me that knights could jump. And so, of course, he took my pieces and I was like, what? What? I, how did you even do that? And he was like, look, this is how you learn. Listen by up, losing. noob. <laughs> yeah, that was basically it. He was basically camping yeah. on all my pawns. <laughs> he was pawn camping. That guy sucked. Pawn camping is not very nice. You no. can get. You should report him for that. Yeah, the worst. And then he was like, uh, I'm passant. And I was like, what the? What is that even? You don't even know what that means. <laughs> don't act like you take French. <laughs> I definitely pronounced it wrong. Right. Uh, And then, you know, go ahead and allow more 
take backs or like a minor bit of retconning more than you normally would uh don't you know don't let people go back like multiple turns right but if someone's like oh when it finally dawns on them and they're like oh and this would significantly change something eh, you know maybe go ahead and let them do it or just be like all right you gotta roll with it roll with it and we're gonna move forward that's really really good advice for jim for our first session engaging with the war rules in birthright yeah. <laughs> because about one round into that, we all went, oh, we've made a terrible mistake. This is, oh, wow, our army's going to die. <laughs> we better do something dramatic and brave. <laughs> Charge? <laughs> oh, we put our spellcasters places where they can't hit anyone except our own troops. Just like good artillery. <laughs> <laughs> you bury them in the infantry. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right, so... Once you've had a session, it's important to get feedback from your players, right? Like not from the sense of how did I do as a GM, but understanding what it is about the game that they liked, that they disliked, that they understood and figured out quickly or what they struggled to understand that they want to understand better. Yeah, and it's good to have that list because it's quite possible that something that someone really didn't like about the system could be due to a misunderstanding or like a, a misreading of the rules or maybe you you know didn't explain it quite clearly enough. It's also really good to iron out if someone loves something and it turns out that is not at all how the game is played. Yeah, that's that's actually important to provide feedback for your own stuff, right? So when you weren't 100% clear on a rule and you just made a ruling to keep the game moving, go back and check that and then say, hey, did we do that right? Did we do that wrong? If we did it wrong, let's be clear on what it should have been so that nobody goes in with a false understanding of the system. And then we say this about every new game, even if it's not a new system at all or a new setting. But, you know, for the first few sessions, go ahead and let people retcon their their builds um you know don't set characters in stone you don't even necessarily if you don't want have to set uh the like personalities or backstories in stone it, it may turn out that you know someone's like i thought i was really gonna enjoy playing the like frontline melee combatant but like this system's way too gritty or not gritty enough and i, I think i'd rather like play something else entirely so i'm gonna get rid of this character because i don't want to like rewrite their entire backstory yeah i I like this a lot. Um, you can run into a problem sometimes when you do like a prologue kind of adventure sort of introduction where like, you know, as there are a few players at the table, like maybe I'm not crazy about my character and, and your character looks really interesting and, you know, you really like your character, but you also like some other and like everyone is trying to figure out what seems to fit their play style and what's the most exciting from their perspective. Like, the only challenge that I run into there is sometimes, like, cool, like, the rogue looked really cool when you played it. I want to play a rogue. It's like, yeah, the rogue was really cool when I played it. I'm just going to keep playing rogue. <laughs> like, you know, like, the only problem with that sort of trial mode is just, like, what if now people's preferences have aligned and you have to decide who gets to keep it and who doesn't? You fight in real life. Right. I mean, that's what I would do. Yeah, obviously. I mean, yeah, and you fight dirty. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm all about the pocket sand. Uh, yeah, in that situation, you know, um, I think it's it's sort of general above-the-table etiquette, which is, hey, I got the rogue first. Uh, maybe don't step on my toes. Yeah. So I think 
it's just very helpful when you're trying to teach a new system to people that you remember that it's a learning process on both sides. You know, these people are trying to learn this game system so that all of you can tell a fun story together. And you are actually kind of learning how to teach these particular people how to play this game system. You know, because if you think about it, you've got one group at your table. Great. And, you know, you will learn how to teach your table systems in general and you will learn how to teach people this particular system but those combinations don't usually end up the same you know you're going to know that you know i know uh, jim wants to know about like mass combat systems you know i know that um steph wants to know about (laughs) rerolls right because she's going to need them yeah um i know the you know Susie wants to know the madness rules with pretty much whatever we're playing right you know and i know that uh angelo wants to um optimize his character i also know he will hold back on optimizing his character yeah and i think uh if you flip the perspective on this as a player who is being taught a new game right it's important to keep an open mind and don't let one experience necessarily be your representative experience right like um, make sure that you're thinking critically about the game that you played and try and figure out whether that was, you know, a, a good or, or a bad experience because of the people who are around you or the system or the GM or some struggle that you had with the people around you or with the system or with the GM, right? Like a lot of times, and this goes especially for like con games, you don't know exactly who's running the game or like what their proficiency is, right? So um, you might play a lousy system that isn't really great for you but with a great and engaging gm and have a great time likewise you might play with a gm who doesn't really match your style but the system or the setting are like really intriguing to you right so just be aware that like that first session may not always be representative of what the potential of a game could be yeah the first date is not always the relationship um i mean not ever the relationship what are you talking about (laughs) (laughs) the problem is when you play a new RPG, you're not sure if you're showing up with first date RPG or you're like, you know, five years into marriage RPG. <laughs> Look, if you don't meet up again, then the first date was the relationship. That's all right. I'm saying. I'm just saying, <laughs> you don't know if the RPG like showered and got ready and like wore clean clothes for this or if the RPG showed up in sweatpants. <laughs> Look, never look your best on the first date. It's good advice. Never be your best GM the first time out. Right. Because there's nowhere to go but down. All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? Uh, that's the sound of, uh, of my date asking for the check. And we're only 10 minutes in. This happens a lot. Well, that can mean only one thing. It's time to move on to the Character Creation Forge and find you a new magical girlfriend. Oh, but before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with you. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sans Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at TotalPartyThrill. So this is week two of Anime. All month, all five weeks of May, we will be bringing you anime builds requested by you. So what do we have this week? 
This week we're building Sailor Moon by request from Justin on Twitter. Okay, this is easy. You just take uh, tool proficiency, vehicles, and Moon Druid. Done. Sailor uh, Moon. Lycanthrope, yes. Fine. Because she is she's a lycanthrope, yes? As far as I understand, which is <laughs> basically perfect understanding of all anime ever. Yes, Sailor Moon is a navyman and a lycanthrope. <laughs> Werewolf Sailor, perfect. Uh, so I will not pretend to be an expert on Sailor Moon, however. Right, because that's my I, job. That's <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> as the, as the foremost expert on Sailor Moon in this podcast, it's interesting when Shane uh, built himself. Uh, he decided to get rid of all weapon proficiencies, and he was just like, you know, all I really want is anime proficiencies, mm-hmm. magical girls, cats, chibis, anything San- Sanrio. Yeah, well, no, no, no mecha. No, I get Sorry. mecha. No, you didn't. Mm-mm. That's the only thing I know about anime <laughs> is mecha. Okay, fine, fine. All right, Magical Girls in Mecca. Thank you. Okay, so Sailor Moon. Perhaps I should describe her a bit? What do you think? Yeah, whatever. Unless you want to. You want to take a shot in the dark? Uh, yeah, okay. Okay. Uh, okay, tell me two two truths and a lie about Sailor Moon, uh, and then I'll tell you the rest. Okay. Um, she is a schoolgirl from the planet Earth Okay. with unlimited power. Okay, she is definitely not from the planet Earth. She is from the moon, obviously. So this moon child, uh, schoolgirl, uses her unlimited power to fuel a neural network that has become an intelligent and bellicose AI that is fighting all the giant mecha queens queens because uh, somehow the Earth became a solely matriarchal society, and I'm not entirely sure why the AI was created by women who use stem funding i'm confused anyway the point is sailor moon has such unlimited power and she's using it to fuel skynet also I, linda connor maybe is gonna kill her at the end of the movie sarah connor played by linda <laughs> come on i've done that before <laughs> it's not even the first time on the show I've screwed you that make up. a terrible terminator you murder all the linda, linda connors in la <laughs> yeah, we have to kill linda connor <laughs> i've succeeded <laughs> John Connor's going to be just safe. You know what, though? I'm kind of surprised at how not all that far off the mark you were about Sailor Moon. She okay. does have unlimited power. There are a bunch of queens as well. Um, it's it's female forward, right? Right. Look, she's a she's a magical girl. She's she's the archetypical magical girl, right? She is a schoolgirl. Uh, who fights evil with the power of love and friendship and justice. Oh, okay. That seems actually way easier. Yeah. Uh, Now, here's the problem that we run into with, not specifically anime characters, with any character that sort of has no limits. Because, you know, Sailor Moon, over the course of, like, all her iterations, kind of does end up... Uh, in control of unlimited quantities of power. It's, it's the Superman problem. It's like, how do you model that in a system like D&D where there are finite limits to what a character can do? Okay. So, how did you? We did it with Glamour Bard 14. No, no, no. Don't put... No, don't say we. Uh-uh. <laughs> I did it with... Thank you. This is me. Glamour Bard 14. Pact of the Chain. Celestial Warlock 6. It's a Bardlock. You like the Bardlock. I do. And I think... Really, what we're going for is we want to model some of her 
uh, most interesting and most iconic attacks and uh, the the sort of spirit of her, right? Because uh, Sailor Moon succeeds because she, like, wills it. You know, she essentially chooses to succeed and believes hard enough, which is harder to model uh, with, like, a, a mechanical D20 roll. But I think if you're going to play a magical girl in D&D, you, you should be using Bard. Okay. Because Bard is where it's at, right? That, make, that makes sense. Charisma-based, uses inspiration, those kind of things. I get it. Yeah, exactly. Now, Sailor Moon has some relatively specific abilities that I think are mirrored pretty well. Cats. Yes, there are cats, which okay. actually is why we're going back to the chain, because cats all over the place. Um, she is connected to cats. She doesn't necessarily own the cats, but they... No one can ever really own a cat, Ishan. See, you're getting this. Okay, so the main abilities that Sailor Moon has uh, that we really want to make sure we mirror is she transforms, right? She's a schoolgirl, and then she transforms into Sailor Moon. Um, she actually does a whole bunch of transforming. She can, uh, I believe in certain iterations, look like pretty much whatever she wants to, to look like. Um, when she is forced into combat, she has abilities where her crying emits supersonic waves. Um, she has this move where she throws her tiara, or at least she did until she lost her tiara. It's sort of like... Um, she should have gotten a returning tiara. <laughs> oh, oh, it does. It, it spins like a disc, like a, like a frisbee. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, also, sometimes when she throws her tiara, it scatters stardust, uh, and people who are uh, under mind control are no longer mind controlled. That feels like a counter charm. Oh, uh, yeah, that's absolutely correct. Bard six, baby, counter charm. Okay. <laughs> uh, also, if you really need to dispel magic, which of course, as a bard, you're going to pick up. Right. And she she's a kind and gentle soul, so she spends a lot of her time actually uh, healing people and healing opponents actually a lot of the time uh so we're getting that both with uh bard spells but we've also got celestial warlock which gives you a, a relatively deep base of uh, pool of healing d6s that you can tap into uh pretty much at will and then i'm guessing that you've got pact of the chain to model her relationship to cats yeah and i like that pretty early on you can pick up uh, the Invocation Mask of Many Faces, which lets you use Disguise Self at will. Great. You're a schoolgirl. Now you're Sailor Moon. Now you're back to a schoolgirl. You look like whatever you want, anytime you want. The tiara, we've talked about this before, actually. When we did um, Captain America, he is someone who is uh, throwing a weapon all the time and it's coming back to him. Mm -hmm. And we, we've, we reflavored Eldritch Blast, right. which... She has an excellent Eldritch Blast here. So that's her tiara? Yes, and the tiara sometimes knocks people down. I think that's well modeled by Repelling Blast. Okay, I could buy that. All right, so normally we would go ahead and share character ideas for uh, for Sailor Moon, but since I already gave a better version of Sailor Moon, let's call it Ultimate Sailor Moon, and you have given us uh, the actual Sailor Moon, I think we can just uh, escape. I agree with you. Let's do it. So before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon backers. Your support is what makes it... Nope, that's what you say. <laughs> Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? Ah, uh, we've got another plot hooks episode coming your way. And in the character creation forge? We've got another request. We are building Goku. I'm excited for this. 
although it's going to be another one of those no limits things we're not building the latest goku okay no dragon ball like super saiyan god okay well that's it for episode 145 of total party thrill i hope we lived up to our name but either way i'm shane and i'm ishan thanks for listening I feel like okay. I feel like Goku is the name of the patron saint of Baton Rouge. G E A U X. You're just putting as as many silent uh, consonants in there as you possibly can. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, also silent vowels. He's very French. Okay. Look, the French love anime. It's well, actually true. It's totally true. Okay. Great. <laughs>